Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. This is The Wireless Reader. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. The subject of memory fascinates me, chiefly because I've got such a poor one. My next novel is going to take remembering for its subject. And it seems appropriate that we start The Wireless Reader with an episode that not only we hope will be memorable, but that will give some insight into what it is to remember. One of my favourite writers on the subject is Professor Charles Fernyhoe, and he's wrapped himself in the subject of memory. He's a writer and psychologist. His book, Pieces of Light, investigates what it is to remember it. We're going to be hearing from him as the episode unfolds. One of the first ideas he tackles in Pieces of Light is that memory is not something that we store away and keep under lock and key and bring it out into the light sometimes and blow off the dust and take a look at it. Instead, he argues, it's something that we construct afresh each time. Memories evolve as we evolve. They're adjusted unconsciously to fit who we believe we are. John Locke said, we are who we remember being. And the first time I heard that, I thought he was talking about selective memories. But in fact, he might have been quite presciently referring to something far more constructed. When I get myself into the mind of a character, I construct their memories and experience events around them, much as I experience my own memories. Sitting at my desk writing a novel, I suppose I'm not doing anything particularly remarkable. Whereas they're living all sorts of adventures and struggling through dramas. What could be more natural that I remember their vivid existences better than my own? A writer with a level of recall that I find deeply impressive and with wit and charm is Christopher Fowler. He's the author of over 30 novels and he's going to be transporting us back to his early past. Anthony Marion has something close to what we call a Proustian moment when an old box of letters hurls him back upon his own past. But how accurate is what he remembers? What fits into the gaps? Who are you when you can't remember who you were anymore? We say that people who've died live on in our memories. But what if we're still alive and don't fully live on in our own? And the real kicker with that Proustian moment where some trigger has all the memories rushing back is that it's misremembered. That's not what happened to Proust at all. He smelt the Madelines and he had some sensation that he couldn't fully define and he had to work towards it. He had to work hard time and time again at reconstructing his memories. Yes, even one of the most significant examples of remembering in our culture has been re-remembered for our own convenience. I owe a debt to Professor Charles Fernyhoe for opening up those ideas and for opening up our show. Music is by Richard Anthony Jay.
When brothers and sisters are young, observed the psychologist Dorothy Rowe, they fight with each other for their parents' attention. When they are older, siblings battle over who has the most truthful, accurate memory of their shared past. Adult siblings generally do not face the same pressures as married couples to agree on a story about their pasts. Individuals who have spent a lifetime trying to define themselves in opposition to each other are unlikely to be quite as motivated to settle their memory differences. And the fact is that adult siblings usually do not get as many opportunities as couples do to negotiate their memory disputes. Although it was in the saddest of circumstances, just such an opportunity presented itself to Fiona and her siblings. After her father's death, she and four of her five brothers and sisters congregated at the family home to make preparations for the funeral. They could not begin in earnest until they had tracked down the sixth sibling, who was travelling in the Middle East, out of contact. In the hiatus, they spent three days sitting around the house, talking at unaccustomed length. Although the siblings were close, they were not used to spending this much time together as adults. Unsurprisingly, their conversations turned to the past. For Fiona, what followed was the perfect demonstration of how sibling memories can diverge. The five eldest children were born close together, within the space of not much more than six years. The last, Jeannie, arrived five years later. For that reason, the elder five were all able to remember the youngest child's birth and early years. And Jeannie's third birthday turned into an event which all of them could remember, albeit in their own different ways. The family home was situated close to the Merrick, a substantial hill in Galloway in the Scottish borders. As a birthday treat, little Jeannie wondered whether she might be allowed to climb the hill. Jeannie may climb the Merrick, their father pronounced, on one condition. She may be cajoled, but not carried. The little girl had approval to go up the mountain with the rest of the family, but only under her own steam. As they were growing up, the children talked about this event and their father's memorable phrase of permission, although their memories of having had these conversations are not now particularly vivid. But when they got together for those first days after their father's death, they found that they remembered the event differently. They agreed on the basic facts of the event, but the details varied. One swore that little Jeannie's Wellington boots had been red, while others pictured them as blue. The more they talked, the more aware they became of these divergences. Rather than simply accepting their different points of view, they felt the need to make them cohere. Eventually, for reasons that no one could fully fathom, the red wellies won out. History is written by the victors, and in the battle of memory, it can be an arbitrary matter who ends up on the winning side. When my father decided to cut the canary's toenails, he pretty much signed its death warrant. This is Christopher Fowler, author of Film Freak. 
They have veins running down into the claws, and he cut them too close. After a few minutes of wavering about on its perch, it fell off and bled to death in its cage, and we guiltily flushed it down the toilet. We were never very good with pets at home. Tropical fish boiled because the thermostat was set too high, and tortoises failed to wake up from hibernation, or were lost somewhere in the garden. A ginger tom died in the kitchen, and my father forced me, at the tender age of seven, to carry out the stiffened corpse and bury it in the garden in order to toughen me up. One spring, I found a tortoise we had completely forgotten about, and realised it had been in the back of the shed for a long time. Because when I looked into its shell, I could see out through its leg holes. Cats choked to death on chicken bones. Gerbils dehydrated because we forgot to put water out for them. Why did we ever keep them in the greenhouse that hot summer? Budges got stepped on, and dogs were returned for being faulty, like toasters. Nothing was ever thrown away, but was instead half-heartedly repaired. One Alsatian was sent away to police training school and came back with teeth permanently bared. Unfortunately, this satisfaction guaranteed or your money back deal didn't cover members of the family. My father couldn't return his wife for belatedly realizing that she was unhappily married to the wrong man. The warranty had expired, so now they were forced to stay together for the sake of the children and communicate via a complex series of misunderstandings. It was like sharing the house with the two Ronnies. This was what lower middle class families did in the sixties. Respectability being more highly praised than airy notions of passion or free will, it was very important to present the neighbours with a portrait of familial bliss in the front room, even though you were throwing dishes at each other in the back. Perhaps because we descended from a family of Victorian Londoners, my father had a distinctly steptoeish attitude to life, despite being a white-collar professional. Bill insisted on doing everything in the most awkward and working-class way possible, in some kind of misplaced homage to his roots. At Christmas, we would never shop in department stores to buy gifts for each other. That would have been too easy. Instead, we had to trot up freezing, run-down East Lane behind the Elephant and Castle to buy suspect tat from market stalls. My brother Stephen and I were made to drink a glass of scalding sarsaparilla. A biting sweet drink that had ceased being popular at around the time Oliver Twist was first hitting the shelves. After this, we were taken to watch a man stacking dinner plates and cups and great fans, elaborately tucking them into each other before throwing the whole lot into the air and catching it. While he did this, he would keep up an interminable flow of patter along the lines of, "You'd think this lot would set you back at least a carpet. I'm not asking that. I'm not even asking fifteen nicker. Not fourteen. Not thirteen. Not twelve. Not eleven. But." Ten sheets. That's right, Missus. Which is less than you're getting from your old man these days, ain't it? I'm talking about housekeeping, love. You want to watch her, sir? She's got a dirty mind. At the weekends, I was forced to wear scratchy woolen short trousers and a school cap, or if it was raining, a gabardine mackintosh. I looked like a street urchin from a 1920s novel till I was about eleven. And this was in the 60s. Everyone else was in dayglow orange nylon with Velcro fastenings. I had to endure a short back and sides while they looked like backcombed mops in turtlenecks. Seven years before I was born, bankers could still be seen wearing top hats in Threadneedle Street. Seven years after, hipsters were wearing cowboy hats in Portobello Road. What had happened in that schismatic interim? The wartime baby boomers had come of age. Sundays with my father 
was like being on the set of Bedknobs and Broomsticks, or rumpty-tum fake Cockney bravado, as Bill got down with the lads from the hood, ignoring the fact that he'd not been born within the sound of Bow Bells. Also, because the markets were like open-air auctions, you might scratch your ear and, before you knew it, become the proud owner of a Balmoral-fluted floral china dinner service that looked like it belonged on a funfair bingo display in Cardiff. My father had two modes of speech. Mock posh, a clipped, stilted, vaguely army officer accent he'd adopt when confronted by anyone he considered to be from the lower orders, and mock common, an uneasy matiness he used to prove that he knew what garage mechanics were talking about. Class is a serious and complicated issue in England, and the middle classes traditionally do most of the soul-searching. Alan Clark famously defined the bourgeoisie as people who bought their own furniture. But it was more than that. It was a schizophrenic state, simultaneously aspired to and frowned upon. It wasn't Bill's fault. His generation had been hurled through a period of change that went from Edwardian prudery to post-Wilson swingers parties without an instruction manual on correct behaviour. Like many of his contemporaries, he felt confused and short-changed by a post-war evolutionary system that had gone from advertising rooms to let, no blacks, to renaming streets in Urdu. He valiantly tried to adapt to changing styles, and eventually did so, although his experiments with hair gel met with limited success. He was a man who used a razor strop and got through a jar of brill cream every two months, so switching to intense fibre matte hair product was the most minor of his adjustment problems. And because he was a scientist, he broke down the component parts of household products to make them at home more cheaply, more out of curiosity than meanness he would only belatedly realise that his version of fairy liquid took the skin off your hands because he combined lethal industrial strengths. But at least we went and did things as a family, even though my father chose our activities for an incredibly limited menu. I hated having to take the obligatory Sunday trip to the coast, armed with windbreak, mallet, primus stove, sliced sun-blessed loaf, hard-boiled eggs, pickled onions, gherkins and beetroot jars trips which involved endless consultation of the weather forecast via a faulty barometer and radio reports of south cones being hoisted, whatever that meant. We went out because our TV never worked properly, and even if it had, there was nothing on that I would want to watch, apart from A for Andromeda and Doctor Who. My maternal grandmother had refused to have a television in the house, fearing that it would ruin the art of conversation. And when she finally succumbed, She hung a green baize tasseled vase cloth over it whenever there were visitors, so that they would be tricked into thinking it was some kind of giant ornament. My mother wasn't actually ashamed of owning a television, she just thought it was common. But she had an exaggerated idea of what common was anyway, and said she could judge the class of a woman depending on how she sliced her toast. Corner to corner was correct, across the middle was working class. She wouldn't watch Coronation Street because it revelled in being common and featured women who wore curlers in public and men in string vests who didn't own their own homes. Like all soap operas, Corrie remained stuck in a time-warped alternative universe where the English resolved their problems by thrashing them out as opposed to hiding them behind neck curtains, fences and now tartly sarcastic emails. English television, like English theatre, still resists evolution. Almost everything on it is at least 50 years old and is part of a government plan to get us all to go out more. Like the disappointing weather, the ravens at the tower and cheaply priced ginger nuts, 
part of our shared national past, managed to survive the decades, and there were living treasures who continued from my childhood, including Tony Benn, Sterling Moss, Bobby Charlton, Sir Cliff Richard, Michael Caine, Bruce Forsyth and Vera Lynn. By the way, when Sidney Fury made the Ipcrest file, deliberately distancing Harry Palmer from James Bond, a movie executive told him to dump Michael Caine's spectacles and make his girlfriend do the cooking because Caine looked like a faggot. Quote, they didn't care for Caine's culinary skill of breaking two eggs in one hand either, which gives you a good clue as to why Hollywood gets so much so wrong. This is Film Freak, written and read by Christopher Fowler, published by Doubleday. The innocent pleasures of rolling plasticine or building model planes slip quietly away to be replaced by more sophisticated obsessions. Everyone will tell you that they are unhealthy and irrational, but they can also do you good. My mother had warned me that nobody loves a good all-rounder. She felt it was better to have one intense passion than to chase a dozen half-heartedly until they fizzled out like cheap fireworks. Her advice was sound. I eventually parlayed mine into a career. My passion had always been stories. I didn't care what form they came in, they just had to be good ones, with characters you cared about, and surprises, and twists, and terrific endings that made some kind of organic, truthful sense. And a point. When you start work, you often have to abandon your passions, and concentrate on bringing home the coal. I didn't dare allow myself the dream of becoming a writer, so I decided to get into film, however obliquely. Unfortunately, I should have been in Hollywood instead of London, emerging at a time when the only English film in cinemas was Mutiny on the Buses. Sickly children often fall in love with words. I suffered regular bouts of pneumonia through my childhood, and as a consequence, read far more than the average kid. If you want to change a young boy's life, give him Ray Bradbury when he's not feeling very well. If he doesn't fall in love with the words, you can safely assume he won't ever be much of a reader. Stephen King once admitted that he would try to read even when he was peeing. I still read when I walk to the shops. This is tricky, as it involves cutting through London's busiest station, so you develop a sixth sense about hurtling objects, particularly if they're on fire. Above all other obsessions were the words, most in English, some in French, a few in Latin, but right at the top beside words cunningly arranged into books were films, the double bills, the triple bills, and the all-nighters, many appalling, many enthralling. It's no fun going to the cinema by yourself, but when I left home and started work, I made a friend who shared my fanaticism, someone who eventually passed through the screen with me to emerge shocked and delighted in a world far removed from the placid English suburbia of our childhoods. He became my best pal, the other half of my head, and from the day we met, it was obvious that I would lose him. In the 60s, everybody seemed to be reading, partly because the end of the war had meant a return of cheap paper. It was the golden heyday of the pan paperback, of Puffin and Penguin and Picador and Panther. And besides, there was nothing on TV before seven o'clock except talking rabbits and elderly gentlemen in armchairs discussing nuclear disarmament. I was able to find cheap editions of Anthony Burgess, Joseph Heller, Doris Lessing, J.G. Ballard, B.S. Johnson and John Fowles. The 60s was a time of innovative, experimental literature. Unfortunately, I didn't leave school until the 70s. It seemed that every child raised in the southern half of England in the 60s was a small-c conservative, and that Labour supporters were all from up north. 
We were Janet's and John's. They were Stan and Ina's. We were private and self-effacing. They were public and abrasive. My father read the Daily Express until I went to the newsagent and stopped it from being delivered. Being a good liberal, I was very keen to halt everything I didn't agree with. Even though they were transparently free thinkers, my parents insisted that they were conservative. But then nothing in our family made sense. We had inherited so many mistaken beliefs that hardly anything my parents said ever proved to be correct. Our conversations were peppered with catchphrases that were patent gibberish. To this day, if I lose something and it turns out to be right in front of me, my mother says, What's that, scotch mist or a packet of woodbines? Other phrases would only have worked in a wartime context. She'd say, He's as dim as a Toc H lamp, because wartime Nissan hut lamps were indeed dim. Toc H was short for Talbot House, headquarters of the International Christian Movement. Toc signified the letter T in the signals spelling alphabet used by the English Army in World War I. We good grammar school boys grew up shuttling between two institutions, the Municipal Public Library and the ABC Cinema. The former gave us literacy and the latter gave us lurid dreams. The posher West End cinemas had liveried staff and sold big glossy programmes for their films, aligning the experience to theatre-going. They were heading for a rude awakening. When I was twelve, I earnestly believed I was destined to write fiction and everybody told me in the nicest possible way to stop being stupid. At sixteen, my hopeless enthusiasm undimmed, I explained this to my careers advisor and he looked at me as if I'd announced I was planning to become a shepherd. By the time the seventies arrived, it had become an unusual career choice once more and when you make an unusual career choice, people try to be kind to you by putting off the idea. But to give up in London is to admit the city has defeated you. So it was a matter of pride to keep going. It takes many years to become an ingenue. Soon after that you become a veteran, then you die, and then they republish your backlist. As a matter of record, my careers advisor was a small, bald, rumpled man who worked in an office off Charing Cross Road without any natural light beside a single window that overlooked a litter-filled open stairwell. I can see now that he wasn't qualified to advise me on the purchase of a sardine sandwich, but at the time I hung on his every word because I had been indoctrinated to believe that every adult's advice was right, no matter how ridiculous it seemed. I knew my strategy was going to be risky. The plan was to become a copywriter, write some award-winning ad campaigns, hone my literary skills and become a successful author. I hadn't a clue what inspired this plan of attack. I knew that popular writing was considered to be a vaguely disreputable pastime unless you were in advertising, where it was inexplicably glamorous. I would have to learn to type and like the taste of whiskey, that's all. Advertising looked easy. All you had to do was throw away your moral compass, buy an unstructured linen jacket and set aside a few hours each day to sell cigarettes and drive milk to poor people. To give you an idea of the exaggerated esteem in which ad folk were held in the late 60s, consider this. Michael Winner made a film about advertising called I'll Never Forget What's-His-Name, in which no lesser personage than Orson Welles was the scheming creative director, and Oliver Reed was the hotshot account exec applauded for chopping up his desk with an axe. Advertising was sex. It was fast cars, sheath dresses, pastel cigarettes, shiny suits, jazz, cocktail bars, brittle laughter and nervous breakdowns. I was a clueless suburban nobody in a Burton's Macintosh and a tootle shirt that came with a matching top pocket handkerchief that actually had a piece of cardboard inside it to keep it neat. Quite how I was going to achieve this leap of cool was not something I'd considered. 
The careers advisor looked at me blankly when I mentioned advertising. His mind was geared around insurance and quantity surveying. I hit him with step two, best-selling novelist. He could see that there was some cachet in being a dead novelist, but I could hardly have put dead novelist on my career choices form. To him, real writers were Robert Louis Stevenson, Charles Dickens, or slightly hysterical women with too much time on their hands. They weren't Daphne du Maurier or George Orwell, both of whom I admired, and he certainly couldn't see me as the next Georgette Hare. So he did what he'd been trained to do. He dumbly agreed with my plan and signed off my form, which he followed up with an ancient mimeographed list of contacts before shooing me out of his funereal office. This is The Wireless Reader. I'm in Quentin Wolfe. The music you're hearing is Richard Anthony J's The Tailor. Go to richardanthonyj.com. A particular kind of memory betrayal can happen when a sibling claims for him or herself an event that actually happened to you. Charles Fernieho. A study conducted in New Zealand showed that such memories are not at all uncommon. The researchers focused on adult twins, predicting that disputes over memory ownership would be particularly common in siblings who are more likely to look similar and share personality features, as well as being of the same age and thus presumably having shared more life experiences than ordinary siblings. In their first experiment, the researchers asked their participants 20 same-sex pairs of twins independently to produce autobiographical memories in response to cue words. 14 of the pairs produced disputed memories, memories that were claimed by each twin as having happened to them alone. For example, in one monozygotic or identical pair, both siblings remembered going out for lunch with their mother and finding a worm in their meal. One pair of monozygotic twins seemed particularly susceptible to such errors, producing 14 disputed memories out of a total for the entire sample of 36. In a second experiment, a different sample of twins was specifically asked to report disputed and non-disputed memories, and also to rate them on variables such as vividness of recollection and involvement of imagery and emotion. Intriguingly, the disputed memories were rated as being more vivid and emotionally rich than the ones on which the participants agreed, possibly because a greater effort had gone into constructing the memories that were not one's own. In a third study, the researchers found that disputed memories were also reported by non-twin sibling pairs, although the experience was not quite as common as it had been for the twins. The researchers also noted that identical twins were no more susceptible to these distortions than non-identical ones. A later analysis of the same data showed that there was a pattern to the claiming and giving away of memories. The researchers classified the disputed memories into those that showed the individual in a positive light, such as achievements or episodes of daring, and those that reflected more negatively, such as a memory of wrongdoing. Self-serving memories were much more frequently claimed for the self, while those that reflected badly were more often attributed to the other sibling. 
If the person at the centre of the memory did something admirable or had something bad happen to them, thus qualifying them for others' sympathy, then it tended to be claimed for the self. If the star of the memory was shown in a bad light, it tended to be passed off onto the other. One 54-year-old identical twin, on hearing the other claim ownership of the memory of a roller skating injury from when they were eight or nine years old, responded indignantly, Well, that actually happened to me, if you don't mind. I think you'll find that if you think really hard, it was me. The other, yielding ground, eventually responded, Oh, well, I guess we get confused. It happened so long ago. Disputed memories seem to be an example of how the content of our memories can be affected by the stories that other people tell. Just as a parent can instil false memories in a child, so family members can shape each other's remembering. In time, we might become so convinced by other people's descriptions of their memories that we start to claim them as our own. If the experimental conditions are set up correctly, it turns out to be rather simple to give people memories for events that they never actually experienced. These recollections can often be very vivid, as shown in a study by Kimberly Wade of the University of Warwick. She colluded with the parents of her student participants to ascertain whether certain events, such as a ride in a hot air balloon, had ever happened. She then manipulated some of the images to show the participants' childhood face in one of these never-experienced contexts, such as the basket of a hot air balloon in flight. Two weeks after they were showing the pictures, around half of the participants remembered, in sometimes striking detail, their childhood balloon ride and were surprised to learn that the photograph had not been genuine. In the realm of memory, the fact that it is vivid doesn't guarantee that it really happened. Creativity is nurtured by the right time and place. I wasn't born in either. I'd been raised in Greenwich, South London, which was the furthest our family ever managed to get from the West End. We once had an aunt who moved to Reading, and we always acted as if we were going to Sweden when we visited her. My mother, have you got your scarf and gloves, because it's going to be cold over there. Real Londoners pack food when they go to the country, just in case there's nothing to eat. My mother could rustle up a full Sunday dinner on the beach, and we were always safely back home before nightfall. Perhaps she thought we were going to be attacked by wolves or sold into a gypsy slavering if we stayed on after dark. If you want to see how London looked back then, don't read about it in a book. Watch the title sequence of Steptoe Son, the saddest and most disturbing sitcom ever written. Beneath the titles and behind the jaunty wrong grain of music, the misted streets look full of ghosts. Everything was grubby. If you leaned on a fence, you usually had to have your coat dry cleaned. It was as if the spirits of the war dead had left their residue behind as a reminder for the next generation. When I consider London's murky, maze-like history and overlay it on my own, the soot-stained buildings and afternoons spent diving into theatre stage doors, the fights about politics in smoky West End pubs, the London of mass rallies, flying pickets, barricades, student riots, IRA bombings and more or less peaceful continuity, I'm not nostalgic so much as anxious to keep a timeline that might explain who we once were and who we became. It's a resolution brought about by the quiet revolution of passing time. That time began when my childhood ended, in the 70s. The previous decade had promised much that it could not deliver. As a result, the 70s became like those science fiction illustrations from the 50s of how the future should look, with flying cars and anti-gravity walkways and air tubes. 
We had been offered a grand vision of society where young liberals would rout the old guard. There would be equality, creativity and sexual freedom, or at the very least, flat TVs you could hang on the wall. Instead, the country bumped down to earth in a reality that was unimaginably horrible. London was entering into a state of flux from which it would never entirely emerge. The idealistic visions of the 60s had withered into selfishness and cynicism. The country was visibly crimped by recession and dulled by the rise of corporate culture. Everything about the 70s was as cheap and fake as the glittery strip club sets I could see from the back of my first office. Except Soho's Wardour Street. That was real. It had been there since Elizabethan times and was named after one Sir Archibald Wardour. There was a windmill, a church and a gaming house, a combination that perfectly captures the confusion of seediness that always marked the area. In the late 19th century it was famous for second-rate furniture shops. From 1964 to 1988 it was also the home of the legendary Marquis Club. A pub, the Intrepid Fox, was founded by the Whig leader Charles James Fox in 1784, who promised free beer and a kiss from the Duchess of Devonshire for anyone offering him electoral support during his campaign. The Duchess showed her own prowess by drinking a yard of ale and dashing the empty vessel into the fireplace. The Fox became a goth pub and was eventually closed down, the meaning of its sculptured friezes lost to future generations. Running between Dean and Berwick streets, the thoroughfare was lined with film companies on either side, from huge international companies to tiny two-man operations. Rank Films had their artist studio here, and every room of every building was exclusively filled with film and post-production companies. Runners dashed in and out of the traffic, delivering film cans to projection booths, and the entire street had a manic energy similar to that of Fleet Street, with its copyboys racing to meet editors' deadlines. The windows of the old buildings from Hammer House to Warner Brothers were filled with posters, so that walking from one end of the street to the other was like ambling through an art gallery of popular culture. Beneath the road were the screening rooms, boxy smoke-filled joints that brought all the publicists together in one spot to watch movies at 6pm every evening. Afterwards they would gather in The Ship, the smoky sepia-ceilinged Wardour Street institution where everyone went to discuss films with directors, writers and producers. Underneath Wardour Street was a chain of tunnels that led to and linked the viewing theatres. These had been dug out from the original causeways of the River Fleet, and their entrances stood on opposite sides of the roads in pairs. There were once dozens of strip clubs dotted all over Soho. Girls in pink baby doll nighties would stand in doorways, beckoning punters and separating them from £20 notes before ushering them down steps. Once inside, the Marks found themselves in tunnels that led across the street and back out of a different doorway with no club in sight. The strippers who worked the clubs would perform at 15-minute intervals in different venues, and it was not uncommon to see them dashing from one club to the other, dressed as giant butterflies or Viking warriors. Meanwhile, the rest of the country was stuck in the time that style forgot, with TV sitcoms like Love Thy Neighbour and Are You Being Served?, and variety shows that featured smutty comics telling smirking jokes about darkies and nignogs, with budgie jackets and wet-look shirts that fell apart, with patch pockets and plastic shoes, with budget aftershaves like Brute Splash-On and Aquamanda, one of the few aftershaves that ever attempted to make men smell like oranges, with red plastic wimpy bars and chemists that sold surgical appliances and Scandinavian porn, with Farmer Joe's clogs and knitted beanies, with the Ford Cortina and the Hillman Imp, cars that were positively Balkan in their ugliness. 
Half the streets in London were boarded up with corrugated iron, and the other half were having yellow plastic fasciers cemented over their Victorian brickwork. The English were shabby and behaving more shabbily than ever, as town councillors sat behind their leather-topped desks, pocketing contractor bribes and making smutty suggestions to their mini-skirted secretaries. Advertising seemed a virtuous profession by comparison. As I trudged to Soho each morning from a miniature flat share in Belsize Park, where my outstretched arms touched both walls of my bedroom, I set aside my dream of becoming a proper writer and started spending my evenings studying other people's work at the cinema. In our school, Shakespeare had been treated like a polio vaccine. Early exposure prevented you from catching it. I was made to see Hamlet at the age of 11, while I was still having trouble with basic concepts like theft and shame, let alone duplicity, insanity and allegorical playwriting in the service of exposing murderous complicity performed through iambic pentameter. But I could sense the stories inside, a bit like imagining the skeleton beneath the skin. And iambic pentameter suddenly got easier after a teacher explained that Shakespeare was simply leaving breaths in the spaces as an instruction to his performers. By the time I was 14, I sought out the Olivier film version of Hamlet at my local library and fell in love with the language, even though the projectionist panicked and substituted one reel of the dam busters in the middle of it. He also showed Powell and Pressburger's The Red Shoes without the reel that contained the Red Shoes ballet. Nobody noticed. Teachers knew what they were doing with Shakespeare. For every ten pupils who yawned and grew bored, there was one who said, I don't understand it, but I feel something. This is how such seeds are planted. As a consequence, we were dragged complaining to mystifying concerts and performances just to see what would stick in our brains. The music teacher herded us into the Royal Festival Hall to hear the young person's guide to the orchestra and Peter and the Wolf, handing every child a hack's cough suite with a solemn warning not to make a sound. The art teacher had us looking at Rothko's before we'd even covered figurative art, just because he wanted to go himself. Best of all, the sportsmaster was given no budget to take anyone to sporting fixtures because healthy outdoor activities were treated with utter disdain by the majority of pupils. You can love a school for that. The result of all this forced artistic input was that I had grown up loving stories and wanted to be somehow connected to them in my day job, which meant the choice had come down to copywriter or confidence trickster, which amounted to the same thing. Besides, every young copywriter in London secretly wanted to be a scriptwriter. Most of the ones who were my age had grown up through an astonishing decade of English film. It came as a shock to be flicking through a copy of the BFI Monthly, now called Sight and Sound, and discover that the first English colour feature film was made just 16 years before I was born. Wings of the Morning was lensed by Jack Cardiff, possibly the greatest cinematographer of all time. But that didn't let him off the hook for making me feel ancient. What next? Would I discover I was born before the invention of the kettle? There were still a lot of films to catch up with, and the NFT showed most of the ones it thought worth remembering. But there was something indefinably poncy about seeing films there, so I tried to catch them in real cinemas, where they showed up in scratched-up double bills, sandwiched between ads for consulate cigarettes, cool as a mountain stream, and Gordon's gin.
Despite the offensive but accurate remarks French director François Truffaut made about English cinema, we had an illustrious history of actors and technicians, including brilliantly idiosyncratic cinematographers, art directors and composers. The casts and crews of our films were roll calls of the world's greatest cinematic talents. Even before World War II, the English film industry had attracted highly skilled technicians. In the 1941 film about the Salvation Army, Major Barbara, the following names could be found attached to this one production. George Bernard Shaw, William Walton, Deborah Carr, Rex Harrison, Wendy Hiller, Robert Morley, Robert Newton, Ronald Neem, Jack Clayton, Arthur Robertson, Emlyn Williams, Michael Anderson and David Lean. In particular, the musical scores of John Barry, William Walton and Ron Goodwin and the cinematography of Freddie Francis and Geoffrey Unsworth were synonymous with entire eras of English film. The jewels in our crown, the big three, were Alfred Hitchcock, David Lean and Michael Powell. But there were a great many unheralded and less expert directors who became interesting with the passing of time because they offered glimpses of a country that was fast vanishing from sight. In the 50s, the Bolting brothers and Lando and Gilliatt had produced chains of sharp, satirical monochrome comedies that featured casts so familiar that it was possible to name every speaking part in them. In the 60s, directors like Tony Richardson, Richard Lester, John Schlesinger and Ken Russell caught the kinetic energy of the era. But elitist English critics sought to reduce the visibility and importance of homegrown films and routinely dismissed all those without socialist subtexts or auteur tics. French cinema, to which the general public had extremely limited access, received endless column inches in the highbrow press, while popular releases were blanked. It didn't always prove possible for the siblings to settle on an agreed story. Another event they all recalled was Jeannie's baptism, which was marked by the memorable detail that the baby's booty had fallen off during the procedure. The siblings all remembered the booty, but they disagreed about what happened afterwards. Some say that there was a party at the house at which fireworks were let off. Others recall that it had been pouring with rain, which meant that fireworks would have been impossible. This time there was no détente, no recognition that one's memory was fallible and should give way to another's. The siblings kept on believing what they had originally believed and are still living with their differences. Why are some memories easier to negotiate than others? An obvious answer is that the people concerned are more committed to some of their memories than to others and so are less willing to let go. But the story of Fiona and her siblings also convincingly demonstrates how two forces go head to head in memory. There is the drive to represent events accurately, which means being true to the often vivid impressions that we have about what actually happened. And there is the drive for coherence, the need to produce a narrative whose elements fit together. In this case, coherence is a matter of agreement between people. Our stories need to make sense to us individually, but they also need to make sense to those who matter to us. Fiona's impression is that if the memories had been more emotional, there would have been less scope for negotiation. The more something matters to us, whether it is a happy memory or a painful one, the less likely we are to change our minds about it. The siblings' extended reminiscing session also demonstrated to them how their memories were shaped by their current view of the individuals involved. On one occasion, the children had been playing on the flat roof of the house, strictly against instruction. 
One of them had fallen through a skylight, leaving broken glass all over the floor of the room below. Once again, the siblings agreed on the event, but not on its aftermath. It was not a transgression that could be hidden from their parents, and so they had to agree amongst themselves what story they were going to tell. Since David was a favourite with both parents, they agreed to pin the blame on him. To Fiona, that meant they must have told their father first, as he would have wanted to lay down a marker for the treatment of this favoured child. To others, it meant that they must have told their mother, as David could do no wrong in her eyes. And so this was the course of action that would have had the fewest repercussions. Fiona and her siblings' memories are tied up with their feelings and beliefs about the people involved. None of their disagreements about memory were of any particular significance. They all agreed on the big stuff, how their parents treated each other, how they themselves were treated in turn. Other sibling relationships are less harmonious. In her book The Sister Knot, the psychologist Terry Apter describes how disagreements about childhood memories can be a source of rancour long into adulthood. Drawing on interviews with 76 sisters, she shows how differing accounts of the past can be challenged not just on the basis of their accuracy, but also on grounds of fairness. Feelings of loyalty and betrayal come into play. Of one sister's childhood memories, the other sister remarked, her memories are so twisted, even little things about who said what when. It's outrageous how unfair she can be. The more emotion is invested in the memory, the fiercer the battle can be. Our memories become part of our identity, Apter told me when I asked her about her siblings' research. If they're challenged, it's a challenge to the entire sense of who we are and how we stand in relation to other people. The person who's making a claim on my family story is telling me that I'm not who I think I am. It can be very disconcerting. That's Professor Charles Fernie Howe, his book Pieces of Light, published by Profile Books. I dream about this girl and I have no idea why. Anthony Marion. Even before I found the old metal box, I would dream, waking, wondering. It's not as if I have many memories of her, just one, a dance. And I remember that more for her older sister than for her. It gave me a song, that dance, each verse ending in a waltz. Until the moment that you held my hand and the band played and your sister stayed close by. Until the moment you held on to me and we danced helplessly entranced in the dark. Until the moment when we nearly kissed, the bliss was indescribable. Your sister said she'd tell our well. The song came after the first dream, after forty years. One summer's morning on a Saturday I lay, bemused, astonished really. Why her? Why dream of someone of whom there are no memories? She must have been pretty, but I don't remember prettiness. Just her sister, her, I remember. So I took my guitar into the shade of the old maple tree and wrote song for Hannah. I didn't think I'd have more dreams after that, but I did. What is it about Saturdays? After the dream and the song and more dreams and ten years, I find an old metal box minding its own business, inconspicuous decade after decade. She is in the box, twenty-six letters tied with upholsterer's twine. 
the genie has escaped. I sit and read my little Hannah, just fourteen, and track my progress. On January 21st, in her first letter, she refers to temperatures of twelve below as being charming, I must say, and the pipes freezing as a ghastly bore. You can smell that child's mother and her father with his special preparations so the family can eat dinner early on Thursdays to watch the man from uncle. No doubt, as light relief from Thursday also being the day of lectures, which hardly anybody listens to. I should have paid more attention to my lectures. You had a rubbish education, my wife once said to me. I suspect it was there for the taking, though, water and horses. A second letter a week later begins, Hello, boy. Huh? Dear Anthony to hello, boy. Progress of a sort. We are as one over wonderful Radio London. She writes big letters on a page, all wrapped up in a fancy border. Oh, yes, she has taste. Tribal, too, declaring Radio Caroline going aground as an absolute scream. No radio today can equal the thrill of a tiny transistor under the bedclothes, listening to the Pirates or Radio Luxembourg. Now it's all downloads and YouTube and stuff going viral. Back then, I can only marvel at the deliciousness of a girl who describes the playing of James Bond by Peter Sellers in Casino Royale as too awful for any civil words, which indeed it was. I don't imagine Peter Sellers as James Bond will ever go viral. She loves me in February, me and my super long letters and my super gorgeous Valentine, and she loves Puccini. February weather impresses. It has gone awfully cold and one's feet go freezing. Or there is the most enormous gale and everything is swaying madly. My stepmother's shortly-to-be-opened boutique also impresses. Shall I send a letter to Rave or Petticoat, the latest fashion magazine, telling them about it? Come March, she hates cricket. At my school you have to play cricket. I simply loathe it. And, apparently, Australian swimming instructors. He's absolutely revolting because he's Australian. My school's combined cadet force is mysterious. You know, I can't imagine you as a soldier. Well, I can't either, but there was a time when I spat and polished and the brass gleamed and I swayed on lengths of rope over canyons and drilled and shot with 303s. We paraded in the heat, with those that fainted soundlessly removed to recover under the oak tree. Matron was as close as we ever got to first aid. Matron's other duty was to ensure we wrote home, how many letters have I written with little white lies justifying the brevity instead of now I'm absolutely stumped as to what to say so all love Hannah or the equally pragmatic this letter will be frightfully boring because our daily woman keeps following me and hoovering in every room. In April Labour wins the election. Or are you Labour as opposed to our being conservative? She writes our... I doubt there's a 14-year-old in the country today who would write our. I couldn't comprehend why Labour had just won the election, but I didn't care. 
Fresh out of Africa, the only conditioning I had was from a master at my prep school whose cataclysmic analysis of any Labour victory left me perplexed as to how it was that quite so many people had voted for them. That propaganda stays with me to this day. Hannah only gave politics an instant before moving on to cornflakes and Devon cream, thick and fabulous, and coffee on her way to Cornwall but possibly the world had become a more difficult place in her household. And difficult is what Hannah's mother was. I just love to see you again, but when you have a mother who is as nice as you can get, but has the ideas you can get, it gets a tiny bit difficult. Mind you, boys older than me, those that pursued Hannah's older sister, would think nothing of telephoning several times a day. He said to Mummy, Hello, pussycat and wasn't a bit embarrassed when he found out who it was. Odd? Definitely, poor boy. He has also walked up this road twice. He wasn't the only one. Perhaps the daughter stood in the upstairs bedrooms watching the cavalcade of boys passing by and by and by. Yes, I was there too. Much later, my father-in-law bought the house opposite, and to this day I watch from the drawing-room window and wonder. What's this? Anyway, all my love, which is a hell of a lot, believe it or not. Lulu. Lulu? Where did that come from? For January, February, March and most of April she's Hannah. And on the 20th of April she rewards me with Lulu. Take that, Hannah's mum. Was this just a literary love affair? You know, you write very sweet letters and I love receiving them. Or... You just write such sweet ones to read, you just don't know. This is why I have no memory of her, because I hardly ever saw her, what with school and a mother and a bitch of a sister and the wrong sort of invitation. Also, thanks for that sort of invitation. I'm sorry that I couldn't appear. Come May, she's drawing pictures for me in her letters. My little Lulu has a fringe. She also plays the cello. Fabulous instrument, really square and makes a great sound, sharp to play. And I discover her birthday in August, which is always useful in a boy's armoury, except that she'll be at an unknown address in Spain. I've had my hair cut like this, picture of new hairstyle, because my mother says that fringes are out. It was nothing to do with being in or out. It was her mother smartening her up for her confirmation. I'm being confirmed tomorrow and have got the most beautiful set of white and gold Charles Dickens, which is super for soon, but not yet. Fortunately, her mother was probably unaware of must go now, all, 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 all love, wild thing, love, bang, bang, what now, my love, Lulu? Super for soon meets wild thing. I am not making this up. And I am not making this up either. I have just found out after measuring myself that my legs are four and three-quarter feet long and I'm five foot four. Or this. The first two goes I had were at a donkey derby where I was bowling for a pig. If I'd won, I'd have taken it for walks in Holland Park where all the disapproving nannies are by the thousand. Then comes June, in which month I receive eight letters. The pinnacle of the affair, you might think. And where am I? At boarding school. 
In the first letter, I move from being darling Kenya to my darling Antony, and she pays me a compliment which, if I was never to receive another, would suffice. I love you very much, and my insides jump about whenever I think of you. I am also a hit with the dog. Oh, I do miss you so dreadfully, and I long, long, long to see you again. I'm sure my dog dies to see you also, as she made absolute great, great friends with you on that, I hope, successful evening. Two months later, this dog had two of the most beautiful gentleman puppies. Do I remember that evening? Or the dog, or the puppies? No, I do not. Why do I not remember? Mary Stuart comes top of the pops, except for her boring long descriptions, as does Bieber, despite it being damn well hot in there. It was hot in Bieber, or so we boys thought, as we searched for pretty girls in summer dresses. Well, any girls, actually. She's added the guitar to her cello and is becoming distinctly quirky. I can't think of anything to say, so I am playing my guitar with my toes. And later, in the same letter, it's rather difficult to write now because I've just remembered that a great friend has asked me to keep all my fingers and toes crossed because she is having an interview. On the 10th of June, she calls me the most puerile boy I've ever met, and all because I teased her about a ghost. I bet you wouldn't laugh all night if you had to sleep there by yourself. Mark has appeared from somewhere. You are not to tease me about Mark being my new boyfriend. He's just not. Hmm. In fact, it's worse. Some futile boy wrote to me the other day, and I'm debating whether to write to him and say, boyfriend or no boyfriend, I'm writing to another boy, so buzz off, see? Or do you think that would be too rude? She wants to involve me in the transfer. Somewhat rashly, her mother has disappeared to Vienna for operas and sightseeing. In her absence, all of us are rushing off to see the wrong box as mummies away. Not very nice of us, but still. June being June, and Hannah's family being what it is, there is the annual Eton and Harrow cricket match. A tray smarty occasion. Hell! and the buying of a pair of fabulous red bell-bottom trousers. And water-skiing being the best sort of beach amusement. There is also a long, long rant about two Australian swimming instructors. Hope you don't mind me bulleting like this, but I'm so furious about it, I had to do this. She also hates Elvis. I hate Elvis's new one, and I hate him. On the last day of July, she relates a dreadful story about her French host in Spain. In front of everybody there, he hit Suzette, his daughter, three times across the face. All the time I was jittering that the papa might hit me also. However, he didn't. He just said, Alléoli, in a soft voice. Gosh, I was so frightened, I couldn't do anything. On the 24th of August, 1966, my 17th birthday, she writes from Spain the penultimate and shortest letter that I have from her and signs herself Lou. Is that an upgrade or just half of Lulu? There were no more letters, not for a year.
If you look at historyorb.com, you will find that nothing of historical interest happened on the 14th of September 1967. On the 13th, Vorster became South Africa's premier. And on the 15th, the first British nuclear submarine was launched. On the 14th, my lovely Lulu wrote this letter. Dear Anthony, I come back from my holidays and find your letter waiting. I must admit a certain amount of surprise runs through my mind at inevitable recognition of your handwriting. Anyway, having read it through a couple of times, my answer agreeing to your wish is brief. My answer is no, but for a number of reasons. A. That I wish to remain a good friend of yours and nothing more, for I feel that if we wrote to each other at first the letters we exchanged would be purely friendly and conversational, but in time... Maybe I flatter myself, I don't know. They would resume the old affectionate clichés that we probably felt for each other last year, but that I don't now. I don't want this to happen. Secondly, I stopped writing because I, to be quite frank, was getting bored of you. Also, that I was just too lazy to go on writing, etc., etc. Six to eight months was too long. Thirdly, I don't think it's any good trying to go back to people you once felt a small affection for unless the situation was serious. You want people who are new and different and who you can find out about. Our situation to me was just a lark because I was too young to think of people being boyfriends. I hope this letter hasn't been a snubbing or in any way an unpleasant letter. Yours very sincerely, Hannah. What possessed me in that summer of 67 to write to her, to blow on dead embers? To see profiles and publication details and to find the web addresses of all the writers and composers on this week's show and all other shows, go to thewirelessreader.com. If you want to hit us up on Twitter, you're looking for at Fewer Wires. This is the Wireless Reader. The contributors for this episode, Christopher Fowler, Anthony Marion, Charles Fernio. Music by Richard Anthony J. Production assistant, Bernie Barkley. I'm in Quentin Wolfe.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.